Thanks, Drew. Hey, good morning. morning. Happy Mother's Day. Um, So, it's a weird day, right? Secular day, uh, Hallmark holiday. Uh, You know, that's great. Um, I was reading about Mother's Day this week, and the woman who kind of invented it back in the early 1900s, she, so she hated that it happened uh, because it became commercial and then she filed a lawsuit against the government and all that stuff. She wanted to get rid of it. So, that, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a mixed bag since from the very beginning, right? And you show up at church and you're like, gosh, I hope they don't preach a Mother's Day sermon. Um, and I, well, <laughs> I'm going to preach something that you'll think is a Mother's Day sermon for a little bit, and then you'll realize it's not. It's actually a sermon about the Bible, okay? That's really what I'm doing, just to let you know. But I will tell you, I was thinking this morning about how, actually, I've been thinking about it this week, how moms and dads are different. Um, I re, So, we've been going to the, my oldest daughter's finishing up school, and or my youngest daughter's finishing up school, and, and at the school, you have these award ceremonies, and so, uh, but I remember when my son was in middle school. I can't believe I'm telling the story out loud, but my son's in middle school, and we're at Moore Middle School, and they do this award. He's in the eighth grade, and they do these award ceremonies, uh, and, you know, and the, the parents come, and they take the pictures, and, uh, you know, it's great. It awesome. Uh, he finished eighth grade. Cool. Uh, if he could get a job with that, that would be great, but they can't, so uh, it's child labor laws in effect, and nothing, they've accomplished nothing really. So anyways, but they get through the eighth grade, and they march all the kids up there, you know, and they give them these awards, you know, for, you know, whatever. And the only thing I ever told my kids was like, if you get the perfect attendance award, you and I are going to have a problem. Um, I'm kind of against perfect attendance awards. But anyways, that's another sermon. But so my son goes up there, you know, and is like, uh, you know, a word for this and this. It's like three things, you know, he gets in these pieces of paper and they're, they're the awards. And um, so the way they had it is they, you know, they, they, they walk up the, uh, onto the stage and then on one side and then they walk down the other side and then they walk back to their chair. And so, you know, you see Leslie, you know, and all the moms, you know, each child goes up and the moms are beaming and all this stuff. And Jay goes up and, gets the thanks and shakes the hand and then comes down the side, you know, to go back to his chair. And there's a big trash can sitting there at the bottom of the stairs. And he just, he takes his pieces of paper and he walks down the stairs, drops them in the trash can, and then walks back (laughs) to his seat. I'm sorry, I should have, I should have prefaced this story as, um, I was reminded of the day that my wife almost murdered our son. That, that's, the, that's the title of the story. And you can hear all the moms gasp, you know, in the, in the room when it happened. And I thought, hey, he's not going to live to the ninth grade. He's, it's it. You have to give his stuff away. Um, the truth is all the dads in the room were like, that's awesome. Way to go. <laughs> But difference between moms and dads. All right. That meant nothing. Here, all right. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I am going to read three passages of Scripture. And you, I'm going to have them all on the screen, or you can turn with me and follow along. One of the passages is in Acts 16, and then two of the passages are in 2 Timothy. All right. 
Um, and I'll alert you to it. So, but that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read these three passages, and then I'm going to pray, and then I want to make some observations about these passages and then, and then tie it all up uh, in time for you to get to lunch. So, Acts 16, beginning in verse 1, this is the first of the three passages that I'm going to read. They all kind of go together, all right? So, Acts 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for the observance of the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders that were on the Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. I read two more verses than I said I was going to. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning verse 3. Paul's writing to this Timothy. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I'm reminded I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If you turn over a couple of pages, or maybe just a page, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction and for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you would pray you'd open our hearts and our minds this morning, and I pray, Father, we would be drawn to your Son, Jesus through the teaching of your word. And we ask this in his name. Amen.
Well, here are some observations I'd like to make about Timothy real quick, all right? And there are observations that come from these three passages of Scripture. And we're not entirely told Timothy's full biography, but there are some things that we can put together about young Timothy. So, you find out in Acts 16 that Timothy is going to be drafted by Paul while he is young. Paul goes into his town of Lystra, says about Timothy, Timothy, I want you to come with me. And we know Timothy is young because 10 years after this, at least, Paul writes the letter to Timothy and says about him, let no one despise you for your youth. And so, 10 years later, Timothy's still considered young. So, we know Timothy is a young guy in Acts chapter 16. Maybe he's late middle school, maybe he's early high school, but he's not much older than that. And when he's introduced in Acts 16, he's introduced as a disciple in relationship with his mother. So, he's young and Paul is going to draft him to be part of the missionary team. Later, we find out about Timothy that he transitions from being a missionary partner to being a pastor at the church in Ephesus. And so, when Paul writes these two letters to Timothy, he is the pastor in Ephesus. All right. We also discover that there are two women that figure prominently in Timothy's life, Lois and Eunice. And Lois is his grandmother, and Eunice is his mother. Now, here are a couple of things that we can deduce from what is being told about um, his mom and his grandmother. So, his mother, his grandmother, they are Jewish. Acts 16 tells us his mother's side is Jewish. His father was a Greek. Now, for a Jew to marry a Greek in that day, that would have been seen from a Jewish point of view as an illegal marriage. That's not something you did. And it would have inherently meant that his father, as a Greek, was a polytheist. He worshiped the pantheon of gods. So, here's what we know about Eunice, the mom. At the time that she gets married to this, to this Greek guy, mom is not a good Jew. And you know this also because Timothy had not been circumcised when he was an infant. So, so there's this picture that maybe mom is this rebellious Daughter, a Jewish girl that has gone bad. That's the picture that we get. And then somewhere along the way, she meets Christ. The gospel comes to her, she meets Christ. 
some, at some point reconciles with her own mother. Who knows? I mean, maybe it was, it was Lois, the grandmother, who had started all this off, and her daughter Eunice is a second-generation rebel. We're not given any of, of those details, but we can piece together a little bit to know that Lois or Lois and Eunice, they have a shady past. And Timothy is born into that rebellion. And it gets turned around when it meets the gospel. So, the father of Timothy is never named, and we don't know if he's dead or they're divorced or just absent, but we do know that he's not around for whatever Reason. Here is another thing that you can say. Eunice's life as a mother is not a Hallmark card. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find any of the moms in the Bible whose life is a Hallmark card. And I'm not throwing shade on Hallmark. That's great. They're business. they got to make money and they're happy to exploit you for that. Okay, great. Awesome. I just, don't, I just want to make clear here that while this is not a Mother's Day sermon, it's a sermon about the Bible disguised as a Mother's Day sermon here for a minute. We're not here idolizing motherhood. Okay? We're not here creating some, some you know, false... Cleaver family, you know, and uh, in, in, in calling that some biblical picture of motherhood. I, I want to be careful to do that right up front. We're not here to worship some ideal of motherhood. We came here this morning to worship Jesus. All right, so, and, and, and moms are great. Happy Mother's Day. I love you. All right, I have a mom. I love her. Single mom. Of five kids, she woke up at 29 years old in 1981. Found herself all of a sudden single with five kids and trying to figure out what in the world, how is she going to survive? Listen, I have immense respect for my mother. I'm going to call her this afternoon and, and, and just honor her. But we're not here to, to worship some ideal of motherhood, all right? All right. Now, here's something that's very interesting to me. In Acts 16, so we're back in Acts 16, and you also picked this up in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But in Acts 16, just hang with me for a second. In Acts 16, it is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. He's already been on a missionary journey. He's gone to Jerusalem, reported to the council. Now he's headed off to the second missionary journey. He has just had um, the, the great separation with Barnabas. He and Barnabas got sideways about Mark. They part ways. Paul picks up Silas, heads out on the missionary journey. And what he's planning to do is he's planning to go back to the places that he had been on his first missionary journey. He's going to just go and report what the council had said and then wherever the Lord is going to lead him. Okay. So, Acts 16, 
tells us he goes to Derby and then to Lystra. And you realize Paul has already been in Lystra before. He was in Lystra two chapters earlier in Acts 14 on his first missionary journey. And this is where Paul is famously dragged out of the city, stoned, and left for dead. That's Lystra. Why he goes back is a mystery. In fact, in Acts 14, verse 20, it says the disciples come and gather him up and send him on his way to Derby. Acts, in Acts 16, it appears Timothy, who's named as a disciple, a boy, probably he's one of those disciples. Timothy's with the disciples that go out and scoop Paul up from after being stoned and left for dead and help him get on his way and go on to Derby. Now, in 2 Timothy 3, he says, Paul describes, he says, you followed me. You, you followed me. You followed my teaching. You followed me in my calling and the persecutions and sufferings. He's saying, uh, you know, th this contrast of people who had abandoned their faith, that they're heartless and selfish, but you, you, I'm thankful, Timothy, you are the real deal. Now, are you tracking with me? In Acts 16, Timothy son of his mother, grandson of his grandmother. The father's out of the picture. This is Eunice's baby boy. And in Acts 16, verse 3, Paul wants Timothy to accompany him. How many moms in here are letting their teenager take off with a missionary team that has a reputation of being stoned, left for dead, or otherwise subject to murderous attacks everywhere they go? Any moms in here? Letting your eighth grader take off with a missionary team that the last time you saw them, by the way, the town turned against them, stoned them, and left them for dead. Oh, yeah, and then Paul promises there's going to be a lot of suffering along the way. And we're going to go wherever the Lord takes us, and we don't know when we'll be back. How many moms are doing that? What in the world is going on? So let me try to answer uh, that question. Here's a couple of answers to that question. Now, the first answer comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, the second passage that we read. Timothy, he's young. He's a pastor. The church has a big history there in Ephesus. Paul had planted that church. He spent three years there. John, the apostle John, he's probably the resident theologian. Probably Mary, Jesus's mother, attends the church. Can you just imagine the, having to do a Mother's Day sermon if you're Timothy and Jesus's mom is there? Needless to say, Timothy's overwhelmed. He's anxious. He's, he's unsure if he's doing everything right or not. I remember the first church I ever went to, Calvary Bible Church, Wichita, uh, Kansas. I was the, the third pastor of this church that was 70 years old, and um, the, the previous two died. The only way you left that church was if you died. 
And both of their widows, of the previous pastor's widows, were still in the congregation. I would preach a sermon on a passage, and I'd have three sweet women come up to me and show me the notes of what Pastor Peterson and Pastor Taylor had preached about that same passage with the implication of, would you like me to send them to you? That's a rough gig. Remember being just a little kid there. And this is why Paul's writing to him, Timothy, I love you. I can't wait to see you. You're a joy to me. And by the way, it's more than just, I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job. It's, you know, all that's performance-based. This is, I'm crazy about you and who God handcrafted you to be, Timothy. Back to the question, why would a mother send her son into the danger of following God? Well, first, there was a recognition that God had created Timothy. God made him. God was at work generationally. You know, the scandal of the Jewish mother married to the Gentile, and then the gospel comes in and transforms this family and redeems what is broken. And you realize her faith is sincere. She passed it on to Timothy. She had a faith that was real. And the suffering in her own life, it had accomplished what God in his word promises that suffering accomplishes. James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So let that steadfastness have its full effect. Peter, he says it this way, rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. This is part of the testing of the genuineness of your faith, and, and that, that faith is more precious than gold, and it survives being, you know, put into the fire Paul says this is a momentary light affliction and it prepares us for the eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Here's the deal. This woman who was down some road of rebellion, and I don't even know what it is, and I'm making a little speculation here, but from what I understand she got herself in a place where she marries this Gentile guy and didn't circumcise her son like good Jewish mothers need to. But somewhere down the road in this rebellion, she hears the gospel of Jesus and her life completely turns around. She ends up getting reconciled with her mom and she trusted God. Now listen, she trusted God with Timothy. She'd lived out her faith. She passed on her faith. And she prepared her son for the moment that God would come with a call on his life. This is not a Mother's Day sermon. This is for moms. This is for dads. It's for aunts. It's for uncles. It's for grandparents. Our role as the community of faith when it comes to our children, and you can go all the way back to the very beginning. I mean, Deuteronomy 6, 
We are passing along our faith. And it is more than just lip service. We are actually needing to live that out in the presence of the children that are being raised in our midst. Whether that's in your home, whether that's over there in our children's ministry, back there in the nursery, and we are praying... That these kids, influenced by our example, would have their hearts tuned to be able to hear God when He calls them. Which means we've got to trust God with them. Do you trust God with your kids? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? How, how tight are you holding on? Do they see you living the faith that you say you have? Are you trusting in whom it is that you believe? This is the first answer to the question. How does this mom let her teenage son take off with a missionary team that's known for suffering? Here is another answer in 2 Timothy chapter 3. From childhood, not only was the evidence of faith present in a mother and in a grandmother, but from childhood, Timothy was taught the Scriptures. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 14 with me. But as for you, Timothy, and this is being contrasted with evil people who are imposters, But as for you, Timothy, and this is though Paul saying, but Timothy, you're not an imposter. And the reason you're not, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood. So who's Paul talking about as the ones responsible for what it is that he'd learned. It was mother and his grandmother. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to go on and explain a little more about the sacred writings, and so am I here in a minute. But as for you, He learned these things, and he learned them from his mom, from his grandmother. And it's a reminder that that children do not come into this world with a knowledge about God. They have to learn it. Every child that is over in that building this morning 
They did not come into this world with a knowledge about who God is. Everything they know about God, they have to learn from somebody. And then he talks about it being firmly believed. He believed that it was true. Not only did he learn it, but he believed it was true. Listen, you can learn it and not believe it. It means when you firmly believe, it means to weigh all things, and then you decide, you know? To firmly believe. that This means the Bible is the authority in your life. From childhood. From childhood. You know what that means? That his mom, in whatever way she was, was a theologian. And decided that when Timothy was really young... You know what? It had saved her life. She was going to make sure her son knew all about that. Read the Bible to your kids. Read the Bible with your kids. Because he says it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith, not through anything else. Not in getting better, not in works, not in church membership. We have to be careful the message we send to our kids, right? We care more than just about morality and good behavior. We care about that. But that's not how they're saved. The Scriptures... Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells the two guys that are on the road to Emmaus, he opened the Scriptures and showed them how every Scripture pointed to him. It's all about Jesus. Now, this is what I really want to talk about this morning in verse 16 and 17. i got five minutes, but here it goes. All Scripture in verse 16 is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture. All Scripture. All of it. And when you're talking about Scripture, what you're talking about is one book from Genesis to Revelation that is in, in 66 parts. And the Bible literally means book. Scripture literally means writing. They're used as synonyms to talk about the Bible that we hold this morning. You're looking at 66 books in the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, the contents of God's Word was penned, written down over a course of 1,500 years. Some 40 human authors, primarily in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, few smatterings of Aramaic. The authors include people who were rich, people who were poor, People who were young, old, people with 
a lot of education, people that are uneducated, people that are single, people that are married. It is a cross-section of the life stages. That's who the human authors of the Bible are. Inspired by God to write his very words. It's the best-selling book of all time. Know this, the Old Testament is before Christ. The New Testament is after the birth of Christ. We didn't have chapters listed in the Bible until the 1200s. They thought, oh, it'd be easier to know where we're talking about. And then after the chapters, somewhere in the 1500s, somebody added the verses to the chapters. That's why we have chapters and verses. Well, we can go figure out where we are. History proves out that there have always been attempts to destroy the Bible. Everywhere the Bible flourishes, there are people that seek to stamp it out. There has always been a desire for the Bible to be in your own language. Countless men and women died so that we could have the Bible that we have today. Two hundred and fifty years before Jesus is born, there's a group of seventy people that get together to translate the Old Testament Hebrew into the common tongue of the day into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Early in in the first millennia after Jesus, you have Jerome doing the same thing, translating it into the common tongue into Latin. John Wycliffe in the thirteen hundreds is the first to translate into English, into the vernacular of English. He died in 1384 from a stroke, and the church was so mad at him that, uh, that 50 years later they declared him a heretic. And then 10 years after that, they dug up his body and burned it to ash. They were mad at him and stayed mad at him. About the same time, and a guy named John Huss, Czechos, uh, in the Czech Republic, he's translating it into Czech. He was, follow, he was uh, following Wycliffe. He was burned at the stake in 15, uh, 1415. Luther translates the Bible into German. Tyndale translates it into English. 1536, he's executed in Belgium by strangulation and then burned at the stake. By the way, the King James Bible, over 85% of it is actually Tyndale's. He said this, If God spares my life, I would see the plowboy no more of Scripture than does the Pope. Luther translates the Bible into German. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, Luther, is when he comes in and he's holding the finished translation and he takes it there to the king, Frederick. And Frederick's sitting there and he's, he just can't wait to get his hands on it. And he says, is that, is that the Bible? Is that in, in, in our tongue? Because he'd never read it before for himself. Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody risk their life to translate the Bible, 
which was declared illegal all over the world and all throughout history into their own language. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because the Scriptures contain power, and the Word of God comes from the authority of God, and it takes down kings, and it changes societies, and it transforms hearts and minds, and it renews people. And the Word of God, when it is unleashed, it goes out into the earth, like Isaiah 55 says, and will accomplish what God intends for it to do, beginning with your very own life. We sit here and take for such granted what the history of the world has labored to help preserve for us. And there will be some of us that walk out of here and won't even look at it all week long or for the rest of the month. You're missing out. It's why wherever Christianity goes, literacy happens and education happens and the vast majority of translation work in the world is done by Christians. And when Christians go into an area and they don't have a written language, they learn the language. They learn what is spoken. They turn it into a written language and they'll translate the Bible into the written language so the people can read the Bible and be literate and then begin to make progress in their society, in their lives, moving forward. And this happens. There's this, the Bible just begins to be unleashed and we have supported several missionaries, we do right now, of folks that go and spend their entire lives living amongst a people group that have no written language and live there and learn the language and turn it into a written language and then trans- spend their whole life translating the Bible into it. All Scripture is breathed out Theos nustus. It's the same imagery that comes from Genesis 2, verse 7, where God creates Adam. And what does he do to give Adam life? He breathes life into the man. God takes the Scriptures, Hebrew 4's, Hebrews 4 says that the, the Scriptures, they're living, they're active, and he breathes them into existence as he breathed life into man, and he breathes life into the pages of Scripture, and he, and he breathes them into existence. The exhale of God comes through the biblical writers. Some of you, I'm guessing maybe many of you, Say, you'd say, you know what, I'd love to hear from God. You think, man, I just wish God would talk to me. Wouldn't that be great? You know, if the phone rang and, hey, it's God, you, you got a little time? Of course, you wouldn't have answered. You would have waited for him to send you a text, and then you would have answered. I mean, like, you know, we'd all love to get a hold of God. Two in the morning, you wake up, you're stressed out, you don't know what to do. Life is crashing in on you. You're finding yourself worried. I wish God would just talk to me. I wish God would, 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 would say something to me. I wish he would sit right here and take a deep breath and talk and take another deep breath and talk and take another deep breath and talk. And so guess what? From Genesis to Revelation, 
He has taken a deep breath. He has spoken. He's taken a deep breath. He's spoken. He's taken a deep breath. He's spoken. And God has spoken to you repeatedly. He's spoken for 1,500 years through some 40 authors and 66 books. He is speaking. And you can hear from him any time you want. And then you can speak back to him in prayer and you can listen to him in scripture. And that's how you build relationship. You, you talk in prayer and he answers in scripture and it's amazing. And you say, well, how does that work? And I'm telling you, that that's when you discover the truth of Hebrews 4. This is a living act of sharpening the two-edged sword. What Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, that this will... This will accomplish what God intends it to accomplish when he sends it. You realize this is true. And it's amazing. Paul, when he's writing this to Timothy, he's sitting in a hole in Rome, in, in a prison, waiting to be executed, to have his head removed. And suffering does not diminish the sufficiency of God's Word in Paul's life. Paul's imprisonment doesn't diminish his faith in God's Word and in God's truth. Suffering does nothing to negate the truth. And that's why he says, so that the man of God and woman of God may, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's the point. God's intention for you is good work. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved to good works. See Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. So what do you do? <clears throat> Here's what you do. You open your Bible. You can do it alone. And I also recommend highly that you do it with some other people. Whether there are people in your family or people that you uh, uh, meet up at the coffee shop with once a week or, or, or the Bible study. If you're, join the Bible study this summer. This is a great time to, and here's what you do. You open up the Bible and you, and you read and you say, okay, what does this say? What, what did the author mean to communicate to his audience? And then you ask yourself, what do I see in here? This is, so, this is super simple. Some of you think, well, there must be some magic formula. There's not. I'm telling you the magic formula right now. You open the Bible, you read it, and you say, okay, what does it say? What, what are the words saying? What did Paul mean when he was writing this to Timothy? And then you just do, you do the very best you can to understand that. And then here's a good question to ask. Not only what do I see, here's another question. Second question to ask, why is this here? I mean, of all the things that could be in the Bible, why is this here? Some of you would be so paralyzed because you think, well, I've got to get the right answer. And you're looking in the back, see if there's an answer key. It's all right, just ask the question. Answer it the best you can. Here's the third question to ask. First question, well, what does it say? You know, what do I see here? Second question, why is this here? Here's the third question. What does this tell me about God? How does this show me my need for Jesus 
you know, why, why did God have to become man, live among us, die a cursed death on a cross for my sins to be raised a new life? What does this tell me about who God is? How, how, what do I see when I hold the Bible up as a mirror and I look into it? What does it say? Why is it here? What does this tell me about God? If you do that, and you just continue to do it, and don't worry about how fast you do it, and don't worry about how much you read in a year, and all that'll come, but just start. And meet with some other folks periodically and talk about the same things. Well, what did you see? Why do you think it's here? What do, you, what do you see this telling us about who God is? You, you'll be blown away at how living and active this Bible is. You need to open it and say, okay, God, teach me. Where am I wrong and where do I need to be corrected? Where do I need to be trained in righteousness? This, this promise is it's profitable for that. Anywhere I go in here, it, it'll help do this. God, please equip me. This is you pray. Equip me. You want to know how to pray? Pray 16 and 17. God, show me what's profitable here. How do I need to be corrected? How do I need to be trained? Father, would you equip me to do the good work that you created me to do? Not so that you'll love me, but because you already love me. Not so that I can... Gain your affection, but because I already have your affection. Because I want you to change my life. And I'm going to trust you to do that. What is the relationship you have with God's Word this morning? And how are you doing it, living out the things that you say you, and you do, you believe? How are you doing living that out? This is a great time. You're moving into the summer. It is a great time as routines change to go, you know what, I want, I want this to be a part of my summer of 2023. I'm going to spend that time reading John's gospel or reading through Paul's letters. Or... It's a great time to do that. Listening to God. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do these things that only you can do. You'd stir our hearts this morning. You'd cause us to want to press in and to spend time in your word so that we can hear you. Father, we want our, our faith to mature. We want it to to become more complete. We, we want to pray all these things that you promise us. Father, our lives are on display for the children around us. And I pray, Father, that as they look at us, they would say, oh, they believe the things they say. Father, would you tune the hearts of the children in our lives 
to be able to hear your call. Father, would you give us the courage to trust you with them? So, Father, all these things, we ask you for all these things. And we do that in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.